Good morning. It's good to be with you. Uh, we've been in Ephesians for a while now. We're, at, we're almost done. Just a, a week or two more, and we're going to be finished. Um, it's been an incredible journey. We're going to talk a little bit today about uh, where we started uh, with the big truth uh, that, that, that Paul kind of explains, like, this is the real story for the world. This is it. This is the big deal. And, and it's, it's revealed to us um, in faith uh, through the coming of the Lord. Um, and then it has like these crazy practical impl- implications. <laughs> Ephesians 5, we did some, some tough stuff, you know, raising kids, being married, going to work, all those things that are just, that's real life, you know. But, but it's different now. It's different now in light of what's happened um, in the coming of our Lord. And uh, two weeks ago, we, we talked about the armor of God. Um, and we'll, we'll review a little bit of it, but we, we talked about what, what matters about it. And uh, we... We, we saw that, you know, the armor of God, it's not just for you. It's not so that you can be, you know, super Christian, so that you can be protected, that you can have this or that. Instead, it's really for the whole church, the whole community. Um, it's, it, the armor of God isn't just for you. It's for everyone else in the pew, was our funny little tag. It, it's, ju- it's not you only. It, it's, it's a team sport, Christianity. And I wanted to talk a little bit today about um, a tougher thing. It's in that same text and it talks about stuff that we don't normally talk about. We don't, at least in this church, you go to some Christian traditions, they talk a lot about you know, spiritual warfare and they're rebuking this spirit and rebuking that spirit. It's, and we'll talk a little more about that later, but that's not something that's a, a, a normal part of kind of our language. And yet it's a real thing. It's real in the scriptures. Um, and I, I, I kind of wanted us to think a little bit about it in terms of like our church, you know, our situation, where we're at. A couple, of, uh, a couple of months ago, or weeks ago, the elders wanted to get some data on the church, wanted to find out how things were. And they tasked me uh, with, not the finances, because that would be a disaster, I wouldn't know what to do, thankful order for the finance committee. Uh, Aaron and I are trying to do a budget, so challenging. Um, what I, my, job, my job was to, to find out about attendance, you know, how's the church doing, Right? And so I, I had Colleen get all the data together for the last, like, five years or something. And then I, I learned how to use Excel, which I'd never done. I have a PhD. I've never used, used Excel. Amazing. Uh, what are they teaching kids these days? Not a lot. Um, so I, I plugged all the numbers into Excel, and I got this massive data, data sheet. And then I, I found out that with Excel, you can do these really complicated... Kristen Livingston in the front just nodding like, oh, yeah. I'm with you. You can do these really cool, complicated um, you know, algorithms or whatnot, and you can find like rolling averages to get um, sort, of, sort of trends out of the data. And so I did that, and then, and then, I, and then I looked at it, and I was like, oof, that's not good. Yeah, starting in about um, May of 2015, May of 2015, our church had, had kind of been like angling up a little bit, and then we kind of hit this peak in terms of numbers, just numbers, and then started to angle down a little bit. Now normally, you know, a year ago I'd have been like, oh, who cares, whatever. Just sign the check. Um, but now, uh, with the transition and, and, and trying to, to be your lead pastor, that started to like, worry me in a way that I'd never felt before. And, and I can give you some explanations for, for that data. Like just, you know, we, we know, for example, that around that time uh, was when a lot of our patriarchs and matriarchs started to pass away. You know, Al Eaton, Marianne Fisher, Charlotte Palmer. Um, and in the wake of their passing, we, we kind of hit like an inflection point. And then, uh, you know, this year, uh, Dale Hickey 
passed away and we, we miss him. People that um, were stalwart for our church, gone. And then, of course, the usual attrition in Southern California where people are like, I can't afford a house here. Forget it. I'm out of here. Let's get out. And that hurts, too. People at our Marines, you know, we've always had a strong Marine contingent. They get, they get shipped away after just a little while with us. And then, of course, uh, the, the transition with Neil and Casey kind of moving to Tennessee and, and, and taking their whole family with them. You know, it's like 6% of our, our Sunday attendance. <laughs> like, oh, come on. <laughs> We'll count them virtually. We'll have them watch our, we, we stream the sermons. We'll have, them, uh, we'll have them watch virtually and we'll count them as attendees. And so I got to thinking, I was wondering, why? Aside from all these, you know, reasons that we can come up with, why? Because I, like you probably, if you've been here for any length of time, or even if you've just visited a few times, you've sensed it, like, best kept secret in South Orange County. Like, I mean, where else can you find a place where people love each other deeply like this? Where else can you find a place that really is committed to the Word of God? Where, where not only that, but, but a strong, deep commitment to God's real, true character, His loyal, loving, gracious character. It's rare these days. Like, you know, diamond in the rough, like, like Aladdin. Like, that's, that's this place. And if that's the case, if that's the case, then why is it that sometimes, if we're honest, we feel like, I don't know, we're a little bit ineffective? Why, why aren't they just pounding on the gates to get in? And, and, and every, every person here can come up with, you know, the music's too loud, it's not loud enough. The sermons are too deep, they're not deep enough. Uh, the... the there's not enough youth stuff. There's too much. I mean, you can come up with all kinds of reasons. One, uh, I don't want it to get bigger. If it did, we'd lose what we've got, right? It's fun like this. It's beautiful. We have something so precious. And, 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 and to risk it, like all of those things can immediately uh, pop into our heads for, for, to com- kind of come up with an explanation for why we're at where we're at. But what if that's not really it? What if none of those things are it? What if what's actually going on is spiritual warfare? What if the enemy is so terrified of us that it has pulled out all the stops to shut us up? Um, if you look on your back of your note sheets, or it's going to be on the screen, um, the text for today is, is the same as it was two weeks ago. It's Ephesians 6, 10 to 17. Paul says, Finally, my brethren, my brothers and sisters, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles or strategies or schemes of the devil. For we don't wrestle, we don't fight, we don't battle combat against flesh and blood, but against principalities, authorities, powers, against rulers of the darkness of this age, this present darkness, literally against the spiritual hosts of wickedness or the spiritual forces of evil in the sky realms, the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, of shalom, peace with God and peace with each other. Above all, most important, take up your shield of faith. That's how you're going to quench all the fiery arrows of the wicked one. 
And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about this text, right? And we, we delved into some Roman military strategy, which bored a lot of you. They're like, oh no, I don't want to do a history lesson. I'm sorry. We've got to do it because we, we don't understand what Paul's talking about. It's really difficult to understand um, what it is that he wants from us. And, and what we kind of emphasize is that this is a defensive strategy, right? Paul keeps talking using language like stand, stand firm, withstand. He, it's, it's, there's, a, there's a defensive tactic that's going on. The church has to protect itself from all these spiritual forces of darkness and evil. And in order to do that, if we stick with the metaphor, we learn that what Paul's talking about is he's talking about actually a very specific thing that the Romans did and the legionnaires. What they did was called the turtle. We got turtle up. It was this, this, this idea. Yeah, there it is, right? Turtle up. It was the, the forerunner of what we think of as tanks, right? And, and you'll notice what's cool about this, this formation is that everyone's protected. And not only that, but every person is actually responsible for protecting other people. And so if you're imagining the way that Roman warfare took place, when uh, the, the turtle came up, the turtle's basically impenetrable. It's basically unstoppable. And when it's done right, when everyone's got all of their armor in just the right place, they're protecting each other, they're protecting themselves, and, and the entire unit is, is unstoppable. Can't be, can't be crushed. Can't be pushed aside. All those arrows come in, nothing. Doesn't, doesn't hurt anybody. In fact, the Ro- Roman uh, military was, was famous for being able to withstand volley after volley after volley of missiles because they had this unit, this, this, this formation that they were so good at executing. Which is why we said the reason that you put on the full armor is not just for you, it's for everyone else in the pew or in the turtle. But then what happens? So after, in, in Roman military, what happens, uh, and Paul's very familiar with this, probably writing from Rome, sees these guys practicing, knows what they do, very famous in the, Roman wor- in the ancient world. So if they turtle up, and, and they're successful in it, everyone's got their armor on, and they're protected, and they turtle up, then suddenly the enemy, said, they fire off all their arrows, no effect, and so then they say, we've got to attack, Right? And so then the enemy would come after the turtle and kind of surround it, swarm the turtle. And you noticed in the text, Paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The reason he uses that word wrestle is because that's actually what ancient close combat really looked like. See, if you're like me, you've grown up and, and you've seen the movies, right? And in the movie, um, you know, Russell Crowe, uh, sort of gleaming in the light, uh, sweat on his brow, stands up by himself and he takes out his sword and he puts his helmet down. And then there's like three guys who come up, and then they sort of dance, right? And, and in the midst of dancing, he like chops arms off, he chops heads off. It's, it's a very fascinating, very, uh, in a weird way, kind of pretty, I guess, version of combat. And that's kind of our idea of combat. It's like fencing, right? It's, it's uh, yeah, it's like one-on-one, one-on-three. That's kind of how we picture uh, the way that, that combat worked. But that's not really the way it happened, in the ancient world, what would happen would be um, they would swarm up, the barbarians or whomever would swarm up against the, uh, the turtle, the, the, the Roman legionaries. And what they would do then is it would almost resemble what we would think of as something like rugby, right? Have you seen rugby? Um, where the scrum, I'm obviously not British, but I, I had a friend in college who loved rugby. Apparently the first time you score a try, which is like a touchdown um, in your life, you have to take off all your clothes and run around the field. I saw that happen, <laughs> and that was the last time I ever watched rugby. 
uh, they get in the scrum, right? And there's like, there's like a bunch of guys and they're kind of pushing on each other, right? And so there's one, one guy at the front who I guess has the football or whatever it is. And his friends behind him are pushing forward. And on the other side of the ball, the other team does something similar where they're all using their strength to, to kind of push one person forward. And, and what happens is there's this, this grinding. And maybe we're, we're a little more familiar with American football, which is a very similar idea on the front line where the, 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 the blockers and, and the rushers are, are grappling with each other. And it's really a contest uh, of skill and of athleticism. It's, it's this pushing back and forth. And it's to see who can last longer, who's stronger. And then over the course of the game, the team that flags, that isn't as athletic, that team loses because the, the people who are up against them get to penetrate. They get to attack the quarterback. Well, that's very much like what uh, Roman combat was, ancient combat was. They'd be locked in this battle, pressing back and forth. And so if the flaming arrows of the barbarians didn't work, the idea was if we swarm the turtle and we press in from all, to- all sides, we can hem it in. We can immobilize it. We can make it ineffective. And that's because the regular stuff isn't working, Right? The standard attacks have failed. And so we've got to do something else. Well, I suggest that that's something that's going on in the text. Um, when, when the spiritual uh, regular stratagems, the fiery arrows, when those don't work, something's got to change. And they don't work because you've got a fully armored church, right? A fully armored church. That's the first thing in your note sheets. Um, the enemy's standard spiritual attacks don't work against a fully armored church. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. You know, we've got people here who really care about their holiness. People who are really solid in, their, in, their, in truth. People who are assured of their salvation. People who have peace with God and with each other. This church is fully armored. We're like that turtle. And so the enemy uses the regular stuff. I'm going to tempt you with lust. I'm going to tempt you to division. I'm going to tempt you to deception. And those regular things don't work against this place because we've turtled up. We've got the full armor. And so the result is, the result is the enemy has to do something different to sidetrack us, to destroy us, to break us apart, to sunder us. And so the enemy swarms, swarms the turtle, pressing in. And when this happens, when the enemy can't destroy us and can't break us up, the goal is to immobilize us or make us ineffective for the work of the kingdom. That's the second thing in your note sheets. When the, the pressure, when, when, when the regular attacks don't work, the enemy switches tactics to make us immobilized, cooped up in the turtle, ineffective for the work of the kingdom. Well, what does this look like? What, what, what does this uh, look like spiritually, right? And it's a kind of a question about, it's a question about the forces, the powers, the authorities, the rulers. How do they operate? How do they function in a situation like ours where they, they can't beat us the regular way with the regular temptations and all that? They've got to do something else to break us up, to sunder us, to, to immobilize and, and make us ineffective. Well, I think... I think you may have seen uh, something like this before. But what it comes down to is, is, is recognizing that the way we think about the powers, a little bit weird. Um, you, you look at that, the powers, the authorities, the rulers of this present darkness, um, these spiritual forces of evil. How do they operate? On the one hand, a lot of, a lot of Christians tend to think of them, and 
as, as sort of like these magical super beings. They're invisible, but they control everything. And maybe you've met people who, who think like this, and they rebuke this spirit, and they rebuke that spirit. Everything is the result of spiritual powers and forces. Well, I would say we probably have a different tack. Instead of taking that tack, we kind of look at it differently. We, we, we probably look at it more as like, well, sort of like the devil on your shoulder, whispering, you know, oh, you should definitely do that. And it's kind of a, a, our will is what's required. We, we need to have, have, have strength, and we, we need to say no to that. We need to say no to that whispering little, little devil. And so it's, it's not really about spiritual powers that we need to like rebuke and, and, and have power, uh, divine power against. It's really more kind of what we got to do for ourselves to do the right thing, to resist temptation. And in a way, I would suggest that most of us, at least I, kind of live as if there are no spiritual forces at all. You know, that's really just about me doing what I'm supposed to do. And as long as I do that, we'll be okay. Well, I wonder if, if maybe um, there's, there's some, some place in the, in the middle. Some, some way that we can, we can acknowledge the fact. I mean, look, Paul is saying, suit up. Use your armor, right? You can resist. You have power. That you can do things to resist the, the, scheme, the schemes of the devil. It's not just all God all the time and all prayer. There are things you do. But then at the same time, it does seem like, it seems like spiritual realities are real. And, and there does seem to be some element of them having agency and force and power that a lot of times people like me kind of ignore. How, how can we think critically and, 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 and scripturally and realistically about the powers and how they operate, especially, especially when their normal attacks don't work? Um, I think, uh, is, it, is it picture time? Is it picture time? Oh! Oh, yeah. I mean, woo! What a, what a great decade. Am I wrong? Do you guys notice the, the, the 1980s? Have you seen this? Uh, I was, like, I was in elementary school, so I kind of missed it. But, wow, looking back, phenomenal work, team. I, I wish that I could travel back in time because by far the coolest, most beautiful, amazing decade in the history of human existence. No, really, culture pretty much peaked in about 1988, and since then it's been all downhill. <laughs> look at, uh, look at, I mean, the, there's angles, but then there's also, there's another one. Uh, this, this next one is really great. Oh, man. If you don't know, that's called a mullet. When uh, I was in college, my buddy Joel, like the first or second week, a lot of us came from places that weren't in the South. And so Joel kind of associated the mullet with the South. And so he went to a barber, and he, uh, he requested a mullet. And the barber's like, mullet? Never heard of that before. He says, well, you know, like short in the front, long in the back. He's like, oh, you mean the Hollywood. <laughs> yeah. Well, a few, a few decades behind, but, but man... And, and, and looking at it now, right, 30 years later, looking at it now, you have got to ask yourself, how was that ever cool? How is that even possible? It's interesting. One of the weird things about the way that the powers work is it's actually not that different from how something becomes cool. Follow me on this. Follow me. How does, think about this. How does something become cool? We know it's crazy because we just saw it. And yet, when you're in the middle of it, it's like, awesome. I mean, it, you've got to have it, right? 
how does that work? Uh, there's a lot of things that go into it, right? So on the one hand, there's desires that human beings have, right? So one of the big ones is social acceptance. That's really important to human beings for the most part, right? And then there's also within social acceptance the desire to be kind of like the peacock, right? I want to be number one. You felt it. Okay, you haven't, but I have. I know what I'm talking about. It's, it's that, I, I want to be the guy. So there's, there's these, these desires, right? And then there's also a desire for something new, something fresh, something novel, right? I'm tired of the old stuff. I want something great. I want new Coke. No, you don't. I, I want something, though. I want something fresh, something real. And, and so there's these desires, right? And then, on top of that, there's these people who are looking around, and they have these sudden flashes of insight, of creative insight, right? So in the 1980s, someone was sitting around and being like, what this haircut needs is a scrunchie. And what, you know, and what, and what, why am I not wearing leg warmers all day long? Someone has that flash of insight, right? It, 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 it sort of came out of nowhere. It was like, they were, they were sitting there and, and then they, they saw it and had a flash, Right? And not only that, not only that, but that person did over here, and then probably someone over here had a very similar insight at the same time, and they have groups of friends, and those groups of friends immediately recognize, if I want to be cool, I got to do this, right? And then those friends over there were doing it, and then there's this, this element of like almost kismet or coincidence or luck, where all these groups are doing something very similar in different places, and they start to recognize each other. I mean, it certainly helps to have television and now social media where you can start to see these things, and they start to converge, right? All of those things that just happened are in between. It's not just desires, and it's not just will, but it's also not just flashes of insight and, and creativity, something that could be you know, dropped in, maybe by a spiritual force, but it's also the, the weaving together of those things. And when it happens, isn't it weird how suddenly everything becomes about this? Imagine Imagine you could travel back in time, and you could take one of our hipsters. Have you seen these people? I flirted briefly with hipsterdom. Uh, I decided it wasn't for me. Uh, but if you've seen it, I mean, like a plaid shirt, you've got an axe. Uh, no, seriously, my brother-in-law, he, he was offered like an axe, like a, like a woodsman's axe, because apparently hipsters need this. They have long beards. Josh, I'm looking at you. Um, it, you've seen these people, right? Imagine dropping them in, into like New York City in 1986. People would be like, uh? an alien in our midst. Why? Because that person wouldn't be in conformity with the spirit of the age. The spirit of the age. Somehow all of these forces and desires and, and needs um, and, and flashes of insight and creativity, this, this need for novelty, and all, they've all kind of converged. And they've created an atmosphere, an air, a culture in which that stuff's normal. And Axe Beard Man is not. The Germans actually have a word for this. They call it Zeitgeist, the spirit of the age where there's this kind of miasma or atmosphere or air. And I want to suggest to you that the powers, this is how they operate. They create a spirit. They create an age, an atmosphere, an air. And they can do it in a culture. They can do it in a nation. They can do it in an institution. They can do it in a church. And think about 
how that works, that spirit of the age, where you're in the middle of it. What's so interesting about it is if you imagine the hipster in the middle of New York in 1986, the reason it doesn't work is because all the people around that hipster, their, their imaginations have been limited to what's possible. They, they can't think outside of the 80s. If I even say the spirit of the 80s, you probably conjure, conjure something in your mind. Well, Justin doesn't because he wasn't born. But the rest of us do. So we, we have the, almost an image in our minds of what, of what that might be like. And when you're in the middle of it, you can't see past it. You can't see beyond it. And so if someone who's an alien comes into that place, you look at him and you're like, you're a freak. That's in, that, what are you doing? Don't you want to fit in? Don't you want to be like us? This is how the powers insidiously operate. It's when they can't, when they can't beat down the door because you've got your breastplate of righteousness on. And, and they can't kick you because you've got the, 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 the preparation of the gospel of peace, of shalom. And they can't hit you on the head because you've got the assurance of salvation. And, and they can't undress you because you've got the belt of truth. And they can't get their arrows in because you've got the shield of faith, loyalty to the Lord and loyalty to each other. They can't do any of that. And so they've got to do something different. This is the third thing in your note sheets. The enemy uses the spirit of the age to put our imagination in a cage. The enemy uses the spirit of an age to put your imagination in a cage so you can't see past what is now. And so if we we return to the the metaphor of, of combat, the, the spiritual forces are pressing in. They're pressing in on, on this, this turtle. And they're trying to outlast it, exhaust it. And what they want to do is immobilize it, make it ineffective. Well, the way to do that is to blind your imagination so you can't see anything beyond the world you're in, the possibilities you're experiencing now. Everything else is limited. It's unavailable to you. Because all you can see is the spirit of the age. You, you, you live it, you breathe it. It's just as you're a fish, and when you're a fish, you don't know that the water's wet. You've never known anything else. Your imagination, your ability to see beyond it is limited. It's cut down. And that is how the enemy works. Now, if you, if you follow that metaphor and, and, and you're pressing in against the turtle, and, and, and the turtle is being compressed, and it's, it, they're exhausted, and, and they need relief, and they need uh, some kind of way to strike back, Paul says, receive or take up sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The way that um, the turtle functioned was you, you would take out, it's really a long knife. It's not that long. Like, yay, yay long. Very light, very easy to wield, especially for someone as in shape as a Roman legionnaire. And so you had a lot of mobility. And so you're, you're pressed in the scrum, as it were. And, and you see the, the man across from you or, or to, the, to the side a little bit, you see him buckle. And at that moment, you snake out with your sword. You're not trying to kill anybody. I mean, you are, but that's not the way. All you're trying to do is just nick them. Start taking blood. Because over time, those wounds are going to add up and they're going to weaken him and break him. So he can't press against you anymore. In fact, uh, most scholars would say that probably the most death that occurred on a Roman battlefield was not from a wound that they received. It was because they were trampled. Because they collapsed underneath the scrum and other people stepped on them and buried them. 
That's how powerful the sword of the spirit is when you're, you're, you're pressing and you're attacking and you're weakening so that they, they start to fade. And then suddenly the turtle can breathe a little bit because the people on the front lines are starting to fall and the turtle can move as a unit past them, uh, join up with other units. That's how it works is, is these little tiny blades, these long knives, snaking out and taking blood a little bit at a time. If you think about that in terms of, of spiritual combat, We have to have the word of God. That's the little flicking. It comes to us from the spirit, but it's God's word. Now, a lot of Christians, people who've been in the pews for a long time, might think, oh, word of God, I know what that means. That means the Bible. Well, interestingly, uh, the word behind the word, the Greek there is not logos, which is normally what we get for word. So if you remember from John 1, the word uh, became flesh. That word, that's logos, okay? In this text, the word behind word, the Greek word is hrema. Hrematheu, the word of God. Now, Hrema has an interesting history. In the Old Testament, Hrema is the word almost exclusively used for when a prophet comes up and says, Thus saith the Lord, or the word of the Lord to the nations. That's Hrema, uh, Hrema Kuryu. Word of the Lord. And it's not so much um, word in the sense of, of, of logos or principle or all-encompassing. Uh, it's, it's actually a very simple declaration or message. So if we were to translate the Old Testament in a contemporary way, the prophet would say something like, this is the declaration of God to you. It's very much the same thing as when um, I get up and I say, I now pronounce you husband and wife. I'm declaring something in the world. And by declaring it, I make it true because I've been empowered by the Spirit with a specific office. Or similarly, when the judge hammers his gavel down and says, not guilty, he's made something true about the world. Before he did that, the person in the dock may or may not have been a murderer. But as soon as he says, not guilty, all of the rules that apply to a murderer do not apply to that person. All of the rules that apply to a free person apply to that person. Because the judge has declared it, has made a declaration, a message that the world has given him the authority to to make. And that's very much what the word of God is. God's declaration. Notice something about God's declaration. It's definitely true, because God made it. But it's not something you have to act like is true. Similarly, I might say, I pronounce you husband and wife. And then the two people might go out to church, and then, you know, he goes to the bar, and then she goes to the, what is it that women do? I don't know, but something that women do. And, and they live completely separate lives. They never cohabit. They just kind of do whatever it is that they do. And, and, and does that mean they are any less married? No. Declaration made. And yet they can live as though they are not. Or likewise, if you read the work of Fyodor Dostoevsky, almost all of his works include somebody who's been pronounced not guilty, who lives as if, in most cases probably in his conscience, is a condemned criminal. He's been told you're not guilty, and yet he writhes and expects punishment and seeks confinement because that's the world that he lives in. The declaration has been made, and yet the person does not live according to it. If you've been with us in Ephesians, the word or declaration of God is that you must and shall go free. There is no chain, church, that binds you anymore. Your slate is wiped clean. You have been picked out of the entire universe by the one God. 
He has come in the flesh and he has delivered you. He has ransomed you. He has shattered the shackles that have held you to the powers and the authorities and the rulers of this present darkness. He's taken the power of these spiritual forces of evil and he's destroyed it. He's broken it. And and you know it, friends, because you've been secured, stamped, sealed by the Spirit for an inheritance in the future and a robust inheritance now in the church. It's all a done deal. It is God's declaration. Thus saith the Lord, you are free, no chain binds you, and I will hold you until the end. The powers seek to deceive. They seek to let you think that the chains still bind you. They seek to limit your imagination so you can't believe what is, is. They want you to believe that your church is always going to be like this. It's just not possible for a place like Coast to, to be bringing people to the Lord and baptizing them. It's not possible that a place like this could attract people who've been in the pews all their lives and still don't know God's word and, and can start to inform them. About. That's not possible. It can't happen. You know, the music's too loud or it's too soft. The sermons are too long or too short. Uh, the, we, we like it this way. If we did, we might ruin it. It's not possible that this place could, could thrive and be, and be exciting and wild and have new people come in, and yet we'd still maintain everything that's beautiful about this place, still be Bible, grace, and family. It can't happen. It's impossible. The spirit of the age does not let me think that. The spirit of the age does not let me imagine that. Brothers and sisters, I submit to you that that is the enemy hemming us in, limiting our ability to believe, harnessing our imagination so that we cannot see what is. But brothers and sisters, the word of God is God's declaration that that's not the case, that the chains have been broken, that you are free, and that the air that is around here can change, that the power of God is here and with us, Chosen, delivered, secured, and sealed. And in that, no foe can stand against you. And as it turns out, it might be that the only foe you're really fighting, that we're really fighting, is the one that's up here. We might be believing something because the powers have whispered it here and there and have created an air and a spirit Because if there's one thing they don't want, it's for this place to be effective and mobile for the kingdom of God. If there is one thing they desperately do not want, it is for Coast Bible Church to share the gospel, to baptize, and to make disciples. If there is one thing they desperately desire, knowing they can't destroy us, they've tried, is to keep us hemmed in right here. They are desperately against your expanding small groups, They are desperately against you speaking about this place and your faith with your friends and your colleagues. They are desperately against all of that. Because as soon as that happens, the illusion shattered. Last thing, and we'll be done. Um, So I I don't talk too much about nerd prom, uh, which is what I call Society of Biblical Literature. All the people who couldn't get dates to prom, 
they study the Bible a lot or religion or whatever, and they gather once a year, and they're all in their three-piece suits and, and, and whatnot. It's, it's very status, very all about, you know, who's the, the most smartest, bestest at whatever. And, and there's, there's, there's almost a spirit in the place that what makes you great, what makes you good, is that, you know, people know your name, and you've, you've written this, and you've done that. And if you don't have that, you're nobody. It is pretty much just like high school. It's really sad. Uh, instead of, I'm, I'm the captain of the football team, it's like, I wrote the best book about the word grace. <laughs> okay, cool. Good job. I have a friend, um, John. He's an Old Testament professor. And his dream growing up was to be a pastor. But uh, the Church of England said, no, John, <laughs> you're going into the academy. And he hated that, and he always wanted to be a, a parish priest, a, a pastor, but he, he couldn't do it. And, uh, but, he, but, he, but he looked, uh, because he doesn't care about being the best scholar or nerd or whatever, because he doesn't care about any of it, what he does is he'll go and he'll be presenting a paper, right? He comes in with no notes. He comes in in these really uncomfortably short shorts. Now, remember, everyone here is in a three-piece suit. I'm underdressed because I don't have a tie. He's got, like, these bicycling shorts. And he's, like, a 75-year-old dude, so his legs aren't the most pleasing to look at. Uh, and he's got a shirt on. It says Radiohead, which is his favorite band from England. It's a T-shirt. And he walks up, and he's like, well, I just don't know why any of you are thinking about this in this way. This is completely absurd. Here's how it is. And everyone's like, because he's taken the spirit of the age, and he's tossed it out the window. Because he doesn't care what they think. He, does, he thinks in a different way than all of these people who are one-uppering each other and being the nerdiest nerd. He's like, I don't care about that. I care about the church. That's honestly his thing. He, he loves the church, and he wants people to grow in their faith. And so he, he just doesn't play by the same rules. He's like the hipster dropped in the middle of 1986 New York and says, this is how it is, friends. Join up. It's because he thinks bigger, and has the, 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 his imagination has not been limited by the people around him. Church, I suggest to us that one of the hardest things for us to recognize is how our imagination has been limited. And I think that it's time, high time for us, to say no to the powers, to say no to the possibilities, to say no to the the impossible this, and we can't have that, because I believe that our God's bigger than that. And I believe that if we ask him in the Spirit for vision, we will see that his word to us, his declaration to us, is that there is no limit to what I can do through you. Let's pray. Father, I pray um, for myself and, and for the people of this church that, that you will open up our eyes, that you will open up our vision and our imagination. That we will see that, that in you there is no limit, that nothing truly is impossible for God, that we really can be a place that's effective and powerful and mighty for your kingdom, even if we're small. God, I pray that you will open our eyes. Give us the sword of your spirit that we may push back against the powers and the principalities who have authored the spirit of this age. We'll recognize it for the present darkness that it is and overcome it in your name. In Jesus, we ask and pray all these things. Amen.